All right. Today I'm here with Andrew Hartz from Open Therapy Institute. And thank you for being here for this conversation. I'm really interested in what Open Therapy Institute is doing and learning more about it from you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Would you mind starting by introducing yourself and just give a little bit of your background and how you got involved in this conversation? Yeah, so my name is Andrew Hartz. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I wrote about issues related to therapist bias and overlooked populations in mental health. Um, and that one thing led to another. And now we're building an institute called the Open Therapy Institute that's focused on providing clinical services for some overlooked populations that maybe have a hard time finding a therapist that gets them. And we're also focused on doing workshops, um, trainings for therapists to be better at working with these populations and for people in those populations to get some skills and meet other people with similar issues. So um, that's my focus right now is the Institute. What's interesting when you say overlooked populations, that sounds like a similar sort of thing that that critical social justice theory seeks to look at. Right. But I'm how is this different and how is your approach different from what we're seeing with the social justice lens? Well, I think that some of the pop some people like, for example, if you face antagonism for your views at the workplace mm -hmm. or in social circles or something, um, you can just see a random therapist and maybe they'll be empathic to your experience and maybe they won't. Mm -hmm. And you don't know how that's going to go. Um, a lot of people with those experiences don't want to come to therapy because they think the field has, you know, is antagonistic towards their values or towards their beliefs. Um, so you know, if somebody came to me and says, oh, well, we know, I know somebody who's self-censoring or somebody who's attacked for their beliefs or they got fired or they're having this issue because they spoke up on an issue or um, can you help them find a therapist? I would say, no, I don't know. I don't necessarily know where to go. There aren't a lot of places to find people uh, who would be attuned to that. And they run the gamut politically. I think it's some people who have this experience are more are liberal, some are more conservative. There are people in the center, people with all different types of views. Sometimes it's about religious views. Sometimes it's about political views. Um, but that there are just lots of different populations where, where, where do you find an attuned provider? If, what if you're, your issue is you're feeling you're a man, you're feeling really emasculated in your marriage. You kind of want to find a way to have a sense of masculinity that's authentic to who you are and is healthy. Um, where do you find somebody who's good at that? You know, mm -hmm. um, if, if you're somebody who I think, especially with a, a lot of kids, they're white, they go to a predominantly non-white school, they experience anti-white bullying or hazing of different types. Where do they go to somebody who's gonna understand something about their experience and be empathic? Um, you know, at the same time that there are more and more groups of people that are feeling this way, feeling like lost and stuck and antagonized for what they believe or their values, 
the mental health field is moving in the opposite direction. You know, rather than trying to figure out how do we help these groups and develop clinics and resources to help people having these experiences, more often than not, the professionals in the mental health field in leadership and organizations and, and things like that are actually writing articles that are demonizing people with these views. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a real need for resources um, and um, and not necessarily coming, the therapists aren't necessarily at the Open Therapy Institute, they're not coming at this with like a political agenda to mm-hmm. impose at, at all. It's It's just about being open to whatever mm-hmm their experiences and being attuned, listening, caring, and kind of having that assurance that you're not going to get shut down. You're not going to be, you know, they're not going to avoid the issue. You don't have to lie about, about it. Um, and you can really be, be open. Well, it's interesting as you're, as you're describing that it, it, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but the, the invasion of the social justice ideology into the therapy field has created new overlooked populations. Right. Well, the invasion of the ideology throughout society. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are millions of people who are stuck. They're, they're self-censoring. They're lying about their views. They're isolated. They don't have a way of formulating what's going on interpersonally, what they're feeling, why they're feeling what they're feeling. Um, And a lot of them might not even realize that like therapy might be the ideal way to talk through these things and figure out what they think because it's this private confidential space where you get to have irrational feelings and contradictory feelings and talk through things to figure out what do you really think and what do you really want to do and what's going to be constructive. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's millions of people that are stuck and not sure, not sure what to do. And um, they, they, they really need help, but they're not, a lot of them aren't necessarily looking for therapists that are open Mm -hmm because there aren't therapists who are branding themselves that way very many and therapists aren't advertising themselves as focused on these groups because the groups aren't looking so there's kind of like a we we need to raise awareness about both the need for therapists to do this work and to like let patients know people in in the world know that this is something that can really help if you're being antagonized or you're self-censoring or isolated or have some of these issues that you might be more afraid to bring up in therapy. Um, Yeah. Do you see this as a parallel structure to um, modern therapy institutions or or therapy paradigms, or do you see this as complementary? Say more about what you mean. Like the Open Therapy Institute, the mission of is are we are we are as a culture and as as a profession, are therapists needing to move into something? Is it time to give up on what's been going on conventionally? And as the pressures to uh, conform to the social justice mindset, the trainings and the the uh, licensing bodies and the accrediting bodies are are really incorporating the social justice ethos heavily into what they do. 
is right. is the this creating a pressure to build a, a parallel structure, a parallel sort of profession, or is it a something that's going to create a counter pressure on the industry, on the profession, to hopefully balance some of what's been going on ideologically? I hope that I articulated. Yeah, that. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, um, the. In a lot of ways, what we're doing is the way therapy looked 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a return to basics about being open and being non-judgmental. Um, it's not, I think that can be radical in a censorship culture because people don't have spaces like that. Mm -hmm. So it can have this radical social transformative effect to allow people to have spaces where they don't have to self-censor and can say, what they feel. I do think there is kind of like a radical piece to it. But the other angle of it is this isn't really that different from what therapy looked like 10 years ago. It used to be this way. Um, it's both um, the problem, the problem with care now mm -hmm. in mental health and where it's trending. I think more, especially under recently trained therapists, maybe more than therapists that were trained a long time ago. But the problem isn't partly is they're being taught to overtly insert these concepts into their social justice concepts into therapy and kind of impose these ideologies, um, even when those are antagonistic towards the patient or mm -hmm. potentially counter therapeutic. And I think often they are counter therapeutic. But the other side of it is, even when therapists say, okay, I'm not going to overtly politicize therapy, I'm not going to attack a patient for their views, but they don't understand anything about their experience, or they don't respect their values or they don't have anything to say that's helpful or they're avoiding it or they're inhibited or they're uncomfortable or they're like you know like I think to actually be attuned and do good work mm -hmm. um, you have to be comfortable and know something about it and um, and that's definitely even if private therapists are capable of doing that and I think there are plenty who are it's not being inculcated in the training because in the training programs tend to be censorship cultures that are very ideological mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it's not a place where you learn how to think empathically about people with a range of views because they're not doing that with each other in the program um and so i think increasingly therapists are becoming more activist having mm -hmm. more of an activist mindset. And they don't like people with different views. They don't want friends with different views. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be around people with different views. And I think the idea that they could just turn that off and then all of a sudden be a perfectly attuned therapist for somebody with office, I don't think that's realistic. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. Not only are they becoming more activist for, for whatever cultural reasons, but also they're being trained specifically to be activists. And there's also a selection bias because the people who are going to want to go into that, for one thing, are going to see it see it as an activist opportunity, and right. and select self select into that kind of profession. But they're also the interview process for these schools. And yes. I'm hearing from professors who have been involved in that really does involve li listening for students who are going to be already ready to push that you know critical social justice mindset forward. So it seems like there's a real problem of modern therapy, the modern, the new therapists that are being trained. It's right. a whole new crop of, I, I don't know. It's like a new, as a group of people with a missionary position that 
what does that do to the profession over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years? What does that do to the future or the, the immediate future of therapy? And right, right. when I was in school, this, the pressure of this was so hard on me that I really struggled to complete my master's degree and ended up at the end, I haven't completed it. I've been close to the end of my coursework. And I, if you know the story that I've been telling, I, I have stopped at this point, it would, and, and it was torture going through that because like you said, the self-censorship and the gaslighting and the, it's a psychological, it's like a struggle session that you're going through in order to get through this training. So even someone who doesn't, who wants to resist that ideology probably doesn't come through it in a very healthy place. I mean, there's a lot of deprogramming and healing that needs to be done from an experience like that. So, and and I don't know that my school was necessarily the most extreme. I'm hearing lots of examples that are fairly similar. Sometimes mine does sound like it stands out a little, but not that much. So what does that mean for the future of, of therapy as young therapists and new therapists are being trained in this manner? Yeah. I, I mean, I, my, my training looked like that towards the end. Did it? When, when I started, I mean, it was a PhD. It was so it's six years, you know, okay. towards yeah. the beginning, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like that towards the end. It was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all the therapeutic principles, once social justice comes in, they all evaporate right. like uh, so quick where the idea of like, okay, you don't, you can't use shame and aggression and censorship to try to erase unconscious feelings you don't like. You know, what are we doing in, as a field if that's an effective intervention is like aggressively shame people to purify unconscious biases that you don't want them to have. Like if that's, if that's the best way to approach things, then we've been, we, you know, that's what therapy should look like. We should just yell at people and shame them to be better and then we'll fix it. So it's totally counter to the principles mm -hmm. of therapy to approach things that way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of baffling that people would not point that out. Um, I think it mm -hmm. shows how, how weird this moment is. Um, but you can't, you also, I don't think you can get good clinical training as a therapist in a censorship culture. Mm -hmm. Part of how you help patients open up is by being open and learning to be open yourself. And you do that in a program where people are open and help you be open. It, it's like, you know, you hold in a lot of ways, the openness that you and a big, a big part, I maybe one of the most important things that a therapist does is facilitate openness mm -hmm. and that like creation of an of an empty space is it's not nothing mm -hmm. it's incredibly valuable and you don't do that by being flat or stoic or inhibited or withdrawn mm -hmm. that's not it that's not how it, it's more active it involves empathy and curiosity and connection and sometimes even disclosure mm-hmm Mm -hmm. it's about that's how you facilitate openness but a lot of it a lot of how you communicate openness is even in how you hold carry your body mm -hmm. as a therapist and how you react to things and when you're comfortable as a therapist when one's comfortable as a therapist with the full range of human emotions that comes up that people feel that openness 
And it's one of the most powerful curative forces, you know, that exists. So you do that by cultivating openness. And the best way to get to, to acquire that is through training programs that foster openness. Mm-hmm. How are you going to do that in an aggressive, politically fanatical censorship culture? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get, so it's bad training. And even just a little bit of this can really throw a wrench in the whole training process and it's not like there aren't people who can then undo it to an extent and then go on to be great therapists independently but it's but the the training programs are actually losing losing a lot by losing their ability to have dialogue and tolerate openness um it's it's really high cost because this is one of the main things that therapists do is help create openness and 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 an empty space and 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 that's so i think the the danger to the field is more than just there's going to be politicization or something it's really kind of strikes at the heart of therapeutic fundamentals that are going to get poisoned i really appreciate your description of that that process of openness and the importance of openness in the the training process as well as in therapy and you know i i think it's great how you how you describe that and as you're talking i'm thinking about i'm i'm putting myself in that position of the 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 building of the rapport and the therapeutic relationship and how important it is to be able to create a space for you know, we use the word safe space so much now that it's, that it's like not, it's lost a lot of its meaning and it sounds cliche, but a safe place for a person to share whatever they need to share and feel like they are, they're going to be heard. And the person that they're speaking with is going to genuinely try to receive and understand from that individual's viewpoint, whatever might need to come up. And, and I'm thinking about my, the program that I, that I've, attended this graduate program and how completely opposite that experience was because of the the amount of discomfort and um orthodoxy and and the 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 balancing how much do i want to speak up when something feels really wrong or i i feel like what's being said sounds counter to as you say therapeutic principles and how much i should censor myself for the sake of getting through this and so that is such a, that's a really, con, it's, there's a contraction there. It's the opposite of openness. And I, I that's a, a brilliant way to draw that contrast out. So thank you for that description. Of, yes. And I think it's, um, yes. And I, it's, you know, the safe space thing is interesting to me because it's like, is it safe for dialogue or is it safe from dialogue? You know, yeah, is, that's a good point. Is it what's it what's the safety here for? Um, you know, I think in and with the you know with the open, th- I think if you asked everybody involved in Open Therapy Institute, mm-hmm. and I think we have really great people involved, but if you if you ask them what is what is it? How do you 
facilitate openness or how do you what how do you become an open therapist i think everybody would give you a little bit of a different answer honestly which is great because um they have different theoretical orientations and different personalities and i think they'd all give a slightly different answer to that um but um i think they i don't think that it's like I don't think that people think openness is you just always agree with the patient. Mm -hmm. You always tell them they're right or something. Mm -hmm. That's not, you You can't always agree with every patient on every issue. Um, that's not the point. Mm -hmm. um, that's not why you're in therapy is have somebody tell you you're right about everything. Um, but it is about having the ability to have a dialogue and having the ability to be. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes therapists candor about this is what I think is going on. Mm -hmm. You know, actually that doesn't shut people down. That opens up because mm -hmm. you're being honest and you're being, you're being candid. And I think, I think a lot of times that actually helps patients open up um, rather than the other way around. So, but it's like, but it is a subtle thing mm -hmm. of like, you know, what, how much do you share and how much do you, do you give space? And, um, but um, we need to have it. We need to have a discourse on this topic. And especially related to patients with a variety of different viewpoints where those viewpoints are sometimes politics aren't don't need to be a part of every therapy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think they're always they're not important to every patient. They just mm -hmm. they just aren't. Um, but there are a lot of people for whom they're really central to what they're experiencing and what they need to what they need to talk about. Um, and then there are also people where there's a clinical issue. It's like, OK, it's a uh, panic disorder or something. But their politics are a part of their life, or the mm -hmm. self-censorship issues at work are a part of their life. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes patients have a conception that, well, I can just hide that part and get help with the panic attacks, mm -hmm. whatever. And then I'll just hide it or lie about it because I don't want to have an issue. But it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. it's like it it's really can maybe sometimes you can still get a lot out of a therapy doing that but I think having parts of your your life and your identity and your experience that you feel like you have to hide from the therapist can really derail the whole process of letting feelings happen as they happen and letting them go as as they go mm -hmm. and it's like the whole it, it can really inhibit that whole process even though it's just one part and you think it's not really related to it's not really related to the panic attacks but you don't know um so so like from a, a from a somatic perspective it's like how can you release something when you're clenching something else exactly exactly mm -hmm. or how can you speak freely about you know people get inhibited mm -hmm. when they just have one little thing that they can't say and then they're like, I guess I got nothing to say. You know, but they do have something to say. They just don't want to say that thing. Freud, you know, Freud has this essay in his papers of on his papers on technique. You know, he talks about free association. And he has this whole spiel that's worth reading that he tells patients of what to do. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know. The papers on technique are good. They're worth reading. And he has this whole thing about like, imagine you're on a train. And you're looking at the window at the scenery going by 
and the scenery going by is your thoughts. And you're just going to describe everything that's going by. And if you think this isn't important or I don't really want to share that, especially be sure to share that stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff that you most want to be sure to say. So just talk through whatever you're seeing through the window on the train. Mm. And, but if you say, oh, I really don't want to share this or I'd rather not, or that's not important, especially be sure to share that stuff. It's often, it's often really the good stuff is there. I can't even imagine trying to do that kind of technique with a therapist that you're in, that you're holding back on political, uh, you know, stuff because you're afraid of judgment. I right. can't even imagine. Yeah. That's a really and a good lot of illustration. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of people are, mm -hmm. and it's like, even if you're not doing like, you're not doing psychoanalysis, you're not doing like a classical free associative method. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But the, the principle is the mm -hmm. same of like, Oh, well, I really don't want him to know about this part of my life mm -hmm. or heard about this part of my life that can really gum up things more than I think a lot of patients realize. So when you're talking about pol the politicization of therapy, which is, it does seem like it's moved to this therapy is from the left for the left in a lot of cases right now, not, not everywhere and not, uh, therapists that were trained prior to the last decade or so, but for in a lot of cases, and definitely what we're seeing is trending that way. What does clinical competency for viewpoint diversity look like? Right, right. I mean, I would say in terms of by the left, for the left, I think that the field has failed to cultivate dialectical thinking mm -hmm. on a range of topics. And um, for people that don't know who might be listening, uh, dialectical thinking is the ability to frame issues as having a trade-off of pros and cons and risks and benefits and evidence for and evidence against. And in a lot of therapies, especially DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, but other therapies too, the ability to see things as pros and cons is really a prerequisite for mental health. It's really central. And when people can't do it, uh, you know, that can be linked to pretty severe impairments. Mm -hmm. um, we as a field in mental health have like not, um, we don't have a culture of thinking dialectically around a lot of these concepts controversial issues. So if you look at the texts that are assigned in classes, the journals, the statements by professional bodies, what's being presented at conferences, you know, every indication of what's happening in the field, the listservs, the professional listservs people are on, every every one of these, what you find is almost everything, if not everything, is coming from one side of the dialectic. Nothing on the other side is mentioned. There's no discussion of the other side. And this really indicates severe distortion of what's happening and real emotion dysregulation, that people can't tolerate talking about complex things with the, with the understanding that they have pros and cons and that there's different value systems involved. And, and so I think 
there are a lot of people in our field who recognize this, but they're, they're afraid to speak up. Um, and what that's enabled is it's enabled a kind of all or nothing framing mm -hmm. of issue after issue after issue. Um, and it's, um, I think it's unhealthy for training. It's unhealthy for professionals in the field, but it leads to real distortions in views of patients. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll give one example, um, which is there was a talk at a conference, which I did not attend, but they, they theorized that wearing a face mask, refusing, refusing to wear a face mask during COVID pandemic was a manifestation of this death drive gone wild that you want to kill yourself and kill everybody else and it's this kind of psychopathic suicidist mass murderous malignant thing and you know and i could think of a formulation of somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask as like the ability to see somebody's face and have your face be seen is pretty central part of human relationship and human relatedness. And it's central to emotion regulation and interpersonal connection and mental health. Mm -hmm. And it could be this healing pro-social desire to connect to other people. And, uh, and it's an act of love and affection or a desire for those things. And um, so when you see issue after issue being framed in this kind of all or nothing way they're all on the on one side you know nothing's representing is there another way of looking is this true for everybody who doesn't wear a mask like mm -hmm. they're all just bad evil people who have this you know unfathomable malignant desires you know it's like i i think when you see talk after talk like that mm -hmm. you get a sense of like how are these therapists treating somebody who comes in who doesn't want to wear a mask? Mm -hmm. This is really, you're going to, this is the conclusion you're going to jump before you even hear what they have to say about why they want to watch them. I mean, maybe there is somebody who's like really twisted person and they want to do that. And I'm, I'm open to that happening here or there that could motivate somebody, but it's every time. And when you have so many people in the country that are opposed to this and you're just going to write them all off, mm -hmm. um, so you get a sense of just not understanding mm -hmm. large swaths of the country. And there's this kind of self-righteousness in this, mm -hmm. in these, the viewing all of these issues in all or nothing terms in a way that anybody who really believes this is setting themselves up to clash mm -hmm. with a lot of patients yeah. and maybe say, well, I'll just repress it and I won't talk about it. Mm -hmm. and but I still think it can come through in your therapy, even if you're trying to not talk about it with your patients, because you feel they're these psychopathic mass murderers. Uh, but you're just going to not say that and pretend to be neutral. I mean, I think that's hard to do. So there are all of these. That's just masking. That's yeah. just masking. But you can think about issues related to race and gender and sexuality and religion and like where if these attitudes really start taking over the field and they're growing, um, it really indicates that you're going to have a lot of therapists who are just 
not competent to treat large swaths of the country. Because how many people have one of these views? Well, and it's, it's, all of it's yeah. anti-intellectual. It's anti-scientific. It's irrational to, to select one. To it's it's putting two points together with a with a hypothesis that you don't bother to test against other possible right. hypotheses. You know, so you it's the same with the Trump voter thing. Like the anybody who voted for Trump, well, they they're a racist, they're a bigot, they're you know, the, there's no other reason why someone who's voted Republican on every ticket their whole life would have continued to vote Republican. There's no other reason. It must be, and right. they were a racist. You know, otherwise they would have voted for Hillary. So. Um, it's just this that that whole process of drowning out alternative pathways i i think i've mentioned this before in in a conversation on this channel but i i started doing this exercise with my kids a long time ago when we would drive and somebody mm -hmm. would be driving like um you know doing something erratic or crazy or really fast on the highway instead of calling that person a jerk or thinking, wow, what a careless person, we would come up with reasons why that person might be doing that. So instead of just, this is, what a jerk, look at him cutting people off, or he almost you know, ran into us. We, we make up a story that his dog is vomiting in the back seat and he's like right, panicking, right, trying to, right. you know, or maybe his mom called and she's really, she needs him to get their fat. And some of them are comical and some of them are sad, but we'll come up with, and sometimes we'll try to find the best story for what and that's just that's just one little way to examine other people's motives not from your first assumption but but because there's a whole breadth and depth of human motivation that we should be aware of and especially i would think as as people who are in the applied psychology field you should be prepared to prepare to be surprised by what might actually motivate someone and not assume before knowing more that you already have there, you've got them summed up just by knowing a couple of data points. That's that's so critical. Exactly right. And there's no curiosity. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you say? I mean, you don't want to know any, you don't want to ask a follow-up question when you already know that right. it's just pure, unfathomable, malignant desire that is who they are, you know, <laughs> um, why talk about it? Mm -hmm. um so and it's like and that's such a that's a central thing about what therapists do is like just being curious mm -hmm. and like thinking about it and right and the same behavior could have a lot of different meanings for lots of different people mm -hmm. um somebody it's you know um it has to do with mistrust of institutions and somebody else it has to do with feeling stifled or suffocated or and uh somebody else it's like a desire to it's loneliness you know mm -hmm. and you could just see all those as being potential you don't know mm -hmm. but just like to just kind of write it off that way and a lot of a lot of this literature like there is an increasing body of literature they don't they it's not dialectical there's not an openness of like there's a lot of complexity um and a lot of it it's like it's a, this extreme one-sided framing of issues with a lot of aggression in it i mean it's a that's an aggressive formulation mm -hmm. I, I don't even know we don't even usually frame psychopaths that way like the field mm -hmm. tries to 
think about somebody who's a serial killer is like what happened in their childhood that made them a serial killer like even somebody who's like literally <laughs> killing people or doing something horrible we try to formulate in an empathic way right. and so the idea that we're not going to try to formulate things in empathic ways anymore we're just going to form them in this kind of like as we're just going to totally demonize them in this all or nothing way right and the idea that some the i the thing that's really scary about the field is either everyone's agreeing with that mm-hmm. at the conference or the people that disagree are afraid that if yeah. they point any of this out they're going to face severe professional reprisals and social reprisals mm-hmm. um probably both are happening they're both really scary Because you have therapists that are like, you can't have therapists that are thinking about their patients in large swaths of the country in these terms, or they're going to be providing really bad care. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if they're not really, they don't really believe in this, but they're afraid to say something, then dialogue amongst ourselves is really broken on these Mm -hmm. issues. And that's really concerning too. Um. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a good sign to see uh, lots of the field take this turn. Yeah. I think it's really the example you gave about understanding the psychopath. It's a great example. It's really, uh, it really highlights the contrast. I mean, one of the final straws for me with my graduate program was when my faculty advisor told me, that they are aware. And she said, in faculty meetings, we know, and we talk about the fact that we're no longer training counselors who are going to be able to work with the Trump supporter. And so this was, this was just, it hit me really hard that, that this was being said, not because I have some affinity for Trump, but because it shouldn't matter at all. What, what little political niche your client comes in from to say that I'm going to reject you on those grounds and I'm not going to be able to work with you where, where you can do, as you say, these analyses of what might make someone do horrible things that we are supposed to be able to do. We're supposed to be able to try to understand and, and reach out to someone across the, the, the terrible things that they may have experienced or done but this one thing, this political misalignment can be cause for severing the ability for of someone to even access mental health treatment. It's totally unethical. Yeah. I mean, I and it's and it's like we there's a responsibility that therapists have to treat people and to just say this huge chunks of the country don't deserve mental health care we're just going to deny it to them i mean that's a murderous desire and and it will lead to like real suffering and even things like suicide and uh, unnecessary death um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's it it really is that's so aggressive Mm -hmm. and it's, it's scary to see people in this helping profession of therapists express um express aggression at that level in an institutionalized as a, as an institution i mean it's not just a lone person it's like 
and it's scary. Um, and it it's things like that really damage the trust in the whole field. And, and um, yeah, that's really interesting. And that she just said that point blank to you. Mm -hmm. It's like, they know that they're abandoning all of these patients um, and they're doing it deliberately. And that's the culture of the, that was the culture of the school at least was such that it wasn't even, it didn't even seem like she was making confession about it. It was sort of offhand. It was sort of just a casual like almost with a laugh, you know, yeah, we know this. We, if you don't like this, the social justice ideology, you'd better get through the program quickly because it's only going to intensify was right. the, the message being given. So it was, yeah, it's, it's everything that you say. And um, so going back to Open Therapy Institute, how does, how do therapists access this and how do clients access this? And what is the, what's the mission? Is it a sort of a directory? Do therapists sign on and become and and agree to some sort of a mission statement? And then clients can also access a directory of people who are committed right. to open principles. We are managing some therapy referrals. Okay. Um, we're not in every state. Okay. It's only states that are in SIPAC. Do you know what SIPAC is? That SIPAC I think is you've like, told me, but I, I don't. told you. Yeah. It's, there are some states where if you're a psychologist licensed in one state, you can join SIPAC and you're licensed in all of them. Okay, yes. And it's probably about 35 or 40 states. Okay. There are a couple states that aren't in it. Mm -hmm. um, but we have providers licensed in California, New York, and SIPAC states right now. Okay. Um. And we're kind of building, we're, we're slowly building an in-house network of providers to start to see some of these patients, primarily with an eye towards, I mean, uh, providing care is number one, goal number one, but also kind of documenting issues in treatment and what people are coming up with, coming mm -hmm. in with, and mm -hmm. what's going on and kind of starting to develop best practices in this area and things mm -hmm. like that. So we do have some people that are doing that who are, um, you know, they, they're primarily people that don't take insurance that are very highly skilled mm -hmm. uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, but it's limited. Mm -hmm. um, and then we are also doing workshops for professionals to kind of talk about some of these issues and offer training in these issues, trainings in these issues. I, we do hope we do aim to provide a certificate program. Um, it would be for people who are therapists that they could put, the, that they have the certificate on their profile and um, it would indicate something about um, that they care about these issues, they strive to be open and that they've received some training in the area. Um, but we have, I think we're gonna have other types of workshops as well, continuing education workshops. And I think we also really wanna have workshops for the general public um, where people who are struggling with a certain issue can come in and maybe be a large group format and hear some views, practice some skills, have some discussion groups, connect to other people who have similar issues. So I think, so it's basically therapy and workshops and um, the workshops are both for professionals and for people in the general public. Mm -hmm. And so you say there will be some sort of accreditation accreditation or, or certification at some point offered that might 
be something that a, a professional could use to indicate this affiliation that a client might be able to look for. But that sounds like it's right. a little down the road right now. It's down the road. Um, but yes, it would be it would be kind of a way for therapists to signal that they're invested in being open. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think it would have a legal status of like anything like that, but it would have um, it's kind of more of something that patients can look for as like, this is somebody who tries to be open and, and the people involved, I think it is important to say the people involved in the open therapy Institute have a wide range of political views, a wide range of theoretical orientations in terms of their practice. Uh, they, they practice in really different ways. The, the main thing is this commitment to being open mm -hmm. and kind of actually be thinking about what does this really look like? And I think it does, sometimes it, it involves what you're doing in the session, but it also involves like an awareness of certain issues mm -hmm. and certain things people are going th through and having some understanding of theory and thoughts about what's happening and what people are experiencing too. So I think... Um, so I definitely think that's that's in the works as well. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a wonderful resource. And I look forward to watching this grow. And I, I kind of come back to a question that I have, and I don't know, I don't know if anybody's working on this right now, but it seems very troubling that the training programs right now are so compromised because there are people who are right now wanting to embark on this profession have a lot to offer who will not do it because they're because of the content of the training programs people i've watched people drop out of the program that i was in i right. ended up dropping out eventually of the program and i think that we're going to see a, a you know a, a, just a selection problem of people who want to practice therapy in this kind of classical model the pre-social justice model not going into the field and so yeah. what do how do we respond to that i i picture the need for alternative training offerings yes i think like having some degree granting programs that are not uh Having degree granting programs that are are not captured by this ideology mm -hmm. is something we need to develop. I agree. I also think every I think every therapy training program in the country should require a course in competency to treat diverse viewpoints and 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 in these issues of how to be open and how to treat people with different values. And if they if they don't they're really setting the field up to just not be able to treat most of the country. I mean, it's a majority of a large majority has at least one unorthodox view on something. Right. So to train an entire field that can only treat the ideologically perfect minority is, I think it will, it's not viable. Mm -hmm. Um. So I think that every program in the country needs to have uh, needs to have have training on this issue, and I think we need as many independent organizations as possible too. It would be it would be good to have um, it would be good to have uh, a degree granting institute that trained people this way. Um, 
We don't have that yet. I don't think Open Therapy Institute would be equipped to do something like that for some time, but it's definitely needed. It sounds like you're describing the antidote to the um, the social justice lens when you talk about treating diverse viewpoints. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you could just having, if you have one faculty member who is invested in this, all of a sudden that's a resource and a voice for any student who has these concerns. Mm -hmm. And if you're signaling that this is a place where we value dialectical thinking and dialogue and tre treating and interacting with people with a range of viewpoints, you know, that's, uh, that can really snowball and have a big effect on an, on a whole program. Um, I would say one thing that I think is for people that, well, people in the field or not in the field, um, the barometer of how well the field is at treating people with diverse viewpoints is um, what the training programs look like and what the literature looks like. And when that has a range of viewpoints and is really talking about these issues um, and talking about these overlooked populations, mm -hmm. that's a sign that it's that it's improving. If it that's not happening, that's a sign that the care is continuing to deteriorate. So. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great point. Well, okay. And I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this. And what what would you would you direct people to the Open Therapy Institute webpage or where would you where would people yeah. follow this and follow you? Yes, they can go to the open therapy it's opentherapyinstitute.org. Okay. Um, that's the website. Um, people can go there. They can sign up to, for the mailing list. They should do that. We'll announce workshops and other programs. If they're interested in psychotherapy, they can contact us. Um, if they're a provider and they're interested in getting involved, they can contact us. Um, if uh, we do have social media coming, we have a Twitter account and stuff like that. They're not so active yet. We have Facebook and Instagram, but they need to be built up a little bit, but we'll be, we're there too. Do you want to, do you want to say them or do you want me to link them in the, uh, link them. Okay. I will link them then. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for taking the time to speak with me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Great. Lovely talking. Okay. Thanks. thanks. Bye.